um, in the book of Proverbs, and as I mentioned, we're going to go Proverbs 14 through probably about 20. And uh, I'm actually taking uh, Proverbs uh, section by section. If you read Proverbs, it seems like these are disconnected verses about things that don't have any connection to them. And yet, recent Old Testament scholars have noticed that there are strong connections between sections in Proverbs, especially Bruce Waltke. And so I'm following a lot of the sections that Bruce Waltke has in his commentary. They've been very helpful for me personally. But this morning, we're going to talk about good leaders becoming great communicators. Now, as soon as I use the term leadership, I would imagine that some of you think, uh, that counts me out because I'm not a leader. Um, I know a lot of people who don't self-identify as leaders. Uh, you think leadership and you think these two guys, Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, two great leaders who led at watershed times in human history. Or you think about, you think about these leaders, uh, you know, like them or hate them. I don't really like them that much because they always defeat my cowboys. Uh, you got to admit, these guys are phenomenal leaders, and they've changed uh, the NFL in a lot of ways. You know, who knows about the flake gate and all that stuff, but Brady and Belichick, amazing leaders. I, sorry to raise some, some concern there. Or you think about these leaders, leaders in business, uh, leaders, uh, Mark Cuban, Oprah Winfrey, Sheryl Sandberg, Jeff Bezos, uh, Buffett, Warren Buffett. When you think about leaders, you think about these people. You don't think of, of yourself as a leader. And yet, bibli biblically speaking, every one of us in this room functions as a leader at some level. Uh, leaders are moms who pour out love to their kids. Leaders are dads who work hard to build personal relationships with their sons and daughters. Leaders are big brothers and big sisters. Leaders are people in service industries who make the lives of others just a little bit better. Leaders are innovators in small businesses. What I'm saying is when you think leadership, don't think big leadership. Think about you because you are a leader at some level. With that definition in mind, I want to suggest that everybody is a leader somewhere. Family, kids, grandkids, someplace you are a leader. And in the Proverbs, one of the first things you need to know about leadership is that leadership requires really good communication. You cannot lead well unless you learn how to communicate well. And so let me, let me read this entire passage to you. This is a little bit small. I tried to get the whole thing on one screen. Might have been a mistake. So if you have your Bible, this is Proverbs 14, 33 through 15, 4, but this is an entire coherent section. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. A soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the evil 
and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So, theologians connect the heart and the spirit as the same thing in the scriptures, and so they would say this is a single unit. The key idea is this, good leaders are learning how to become good communicators. Now, you'll see in your outline that I want to divide this into three sections, what to do before you communicate, what to do while you communicate, and what to do after you communicate. Let's look at what you do before you communicate. If you're going to be a good leader, good leaders are building strong habits of character. Go back to verse 33. Wisdom rests in the heart of that person of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. So this contrasts two kinds of leaders. On the one hand, there's the person of understanding. This person is curious about wisdom, curious about how life works, curious about how relationships work. That's type one. Type two leader is the fool. This person does not have a clearly defined moral compass. This person is not curious about how relationships work. This person is sort of blinded to the nuances of relationships. Let's, let's dig into these two. Let's dig into these two. Wisdom rests in the heart of the person of understanding. The heart in the scriptures does not refer to the muscle in your chest, right? Doesn't refer to that. The heart refers not to the feelings and the emotions that come up from time to time in your life. Doesn't refer to that. What the heart refers to is the executive center in your life. The heart is a reference to our will. The heart is the place where we make decisions. Heart is often synonymous with spirit in the Old Testament. Uh, we call it spirit because it's an immaterial part of us. We call it heart because it's the deepest part of us. And if you're going to take a certain job and you want to make a decision, you make that decision in your heart. It's a decision of the will. If you're going to move to a certain place, you're going to make a, a, a clearly thought through decision. That's a decision of the will. That takes place in the heart. Think about the minor decisions you make. What restaurant do I go to? What movie do I see? Those are decisions that we make of the will. That's the heart, or called the spirit. Now, if you're going to make good decisions, you need to know how, you des how God designed the world to work, and the Bible calls that, calls that wisdom. So if we're going to... Let's go back to the verse. If we're going to be good communicators, wisdom has to rest in our life. It has to dwell throughout our life. Let me put it to you this way. We bought our house in Bartlesville 22 years ago, 21, 22 years ago. Over the past 20 years, uh, we have settled into that house. If you were to go to our house and inspect the closet, you'd think, there's a lot of stuff in that closet. If you were to inspect the drawers, you'd say, there's a lot of stuff in those drawers. If you went up to our attic, I'm telling you, there's a lot of stuff up in the attic. Stuff has settled into every nook and cranny of our house. What this is saying is if you want to be a good leader, wisdom has to rest in every nook and cranny 
of your life. By resting, it settles down. It moves in. It occupies every different part of your life. Therefore, you're able to call up wisdom when you communicate as a habit. You know, what's, what's wonderful about, about habits is that I don't have to think about good habits. Good habits just show up. You know, I, I've, I tell you all this all the time. I, d- I try to develop the habit of gratitude. And there are times where bad things happen and gratitude immediately shows up. God, you're good. I'm still alive. I got a, I got a good marriage. There's good, yeah, bad things have happened. But God, I'm grateful for so many good things. That, that now start, is starting to show up automatically in my life. Good leaders learn how to communicate wisely as a matter of habit because wisdom is resting uh, and settling into our life. Then we come to type, type two leader, and I think I've got a slide for this one. Okay, type two leader, wisdom makes itself known even, even in the midst of fools. So zero in on that word fool for a moment. That does n- we, we think fool refers to somebody who's dumb. That's what we used to think. Now we use it for somebody we disagree with, right? You're a fool. You believe that? You're a fool. You believe that? You're, you're an idiot. And I got some land I could sell you. Um, that's not the way the term is used in the book of Proverbs. It refers to somebody who makes wrong decisions because they're number one and God is irrelevant. You want to know what a fool is in the Bible? I'm number one. God's irrelevant. That makes me a fool. I'm number one. God doesn't matter. I choose my way. I don't care what God says. Biblically speaking, that's a fool. Here's the amazing thing. Fools will eventually get some wisdom, right? That's what, that's what it says. They'll eventually get some wisdom. But how does that come? It comes through the hard knocks of life. Now, wise people get wisdom through the hard knocks of life, but fools get wisdom through the hard knocks of life because they're so thick-headed about how life works. So a fool gets beat up the first time, doesn't learn. Fool gets beat up the second time, learns just a bit, keeps on going his way. Fool gets beat up the third time, now he's got a little bit more wisdom. He's still reluctant to apply it. Fool gets beat up the fourth time, okay, okay, okay. I know the world works this way. I'm going to submit to it. I'm not happy about it. The fool learns wisdom the hard way. Give you some concrete examples. Here's Lance Armstrong. Had the most amazing brand in professional sports. And for years said, I did not dope, did not dope, did not dope, did not dope. And then he got onto a show, might have been Oprah, I don't know, and said, all right, I did it. And what happened to that brand? The brand um, shifted and changed. Still, still operative, but it, he's, not, he's not part of it. Tiger Woods, probably the most amazing raw talent golfer ever. Raw talent, probably better than Nicholas and Armstrong. Made a series of bad decisions. And things went badly for him. Or you think about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Married to uh, Maria Shriver. Apparently, they had a good marriage for 25 years, made a series of bad decisions. That fell apart. Wisdom makes itself known even among those who say, I'm number one, and God is irrelevant. Wisdom even makes itself known there. 
So how do I not become that and let wisdom settle down into every nook and cranny of my life? I want you to imagine a set of glasses. Glasses on the left, glasses on the right represent two different things. First pair of glasses, all you see is you. You see what benefits you, you see what promotes you, you see what makes you great, you see what allows you to live as if God is irrelevant. That's set number one. Glasses number two consists of lenses where you see God's presence all around you. That is a great set of glasses. Where you put that set of glasses on, you see the presence of God in relationships. You sense the presence of God in transactions that you have with people. You sense God's powerful presence in answered prayer. That's the second set of glasses. You have a choice about what set of glasses to put on. Do I say, yes, I'm going to live in God's kingdom presence and see how great he is and how present he is, or no, I'm putting on these glasses and all I see is that I'm number one and God is irrelevant. You have a choice. And good communicators are striving, striving to let wisdom settle down into every nook and cranny of their life. One of the ways you do this is through curiosity. Here, here's Edgar Schein. He's 89 years old. He is a professor at the Sloan School of Business at MIT. He's written many, many books, but his most recent one is called Humble Inquiry. He defines humble inquiry this way. Humble inquiry is the fine art of drawing someone out, of asking questions to which you do not know the answer, of building a relationship based upon curiosity and interest in the other person. Now, Shine doesn't say this, but I'll, I'll say this. Humble inquiry is the way a wise person gains wisdom. They're curious about how to apply the scriptures to life. They're curious about how life works, how the scriptures should be interpreted, and how to bring the scriptures into every facet of their life. That's humble inquiry. And good leaders are learning to communicate on the basis of wisdom. They're building habits of character based upon learning wisdom. So I want to pause for a moment and ask you this kind of question. Which one are you? Are you the person where wisdom is settling into your life? Or are you the one who says, I'm number one and God is relevant? Which one are you? If you're honest, you might assign a percentage and say, you know, like 70% of the time, I try to let wisdom come in. Maybe 30% of the time, I'm number one and God's relevant. Okay? Assign the percentages. Because what, what I'm suggesting is if you want to be a great leader, you have to bump those percentages up so that most of the time, wisdom is settling into every area of your life. All right, so that's what you do before you communicate. Here's what you do as you communicate. Good leaders realize they're always shaping culture inside organizations, and they want to shape it well. Now, I have to tell you, in Proverbs, we're going to talk a lot about shaping culture, because the Proverbs has a lot to say about it. Um, it's all about the kind of cultures that you build around you. But let's, uh, let's read this one. Righteousness exalts a nation, 
but sin is a reproach to any people. That is the macro culture we'll look at in a second. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls upon one who acts shamefully. That's the micro culture. There's the widest possible culture of the nation and the smallest possible culture, a servant who leads through his service. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour forth folly. Now, the main idea of the verses that we just read is that we're shapers of culture. Let's think about marriage for a second. If you are a husband or a wife, you are a shaper of culture in your marriage. Are you conscious of the culture you're shaping? If you're a mom or dad, you are a shaper of culture in your family. Again, are you conscious of the kind of culture you are currently shaping in your family? If you're an employer, you shape the culture of your division or of the office in which you lead. If you are a more visible leader, you'll shape it in more official policy ways. If you're a less visible leader, you'll shape it in less official ways. Here's the key. Leaders are always shaping culture. You cannot not shape culture within your organization. And few of us ever stop to think, I wonder what kind of culture I'm shaping. I wonder what people would say about the kind of culture I shape in my organization. The writer of, culture, of Proverbs is urging us to think about shaping culture the right way. Let me give you, give you an example. Um, a number of months ago, uh, the wife of, of an old friend whom I had not seen in, in over 25 years called me, and she was saying, hey, my daughter is going to go to college uh, in Oklahoma, and I'm just wondering about this particular university. Can you say anything about it? I said, yeah. And uh, we caught up a little bit, and she told me a little bit about the culture of her marriage before they got divorced 25 years ago. And here's what she said. There was a culture of meanness. Meanness. I thought about that, and I thought, wow. Wow, that's, that's a sobering thing. You can have a culture that someone would say, I would assign this word over to that culture, meanness. That's not the culture I want to shape. But it's very easy to slip into patterns where somebody could have say, here's the one word that describes the culture. Um, for several years, Cindy and I have been traveling to Washington, D.C. to be part of the Capital Connect group. And... Uh, Paul and Donna went with us one, one year to that, and we would go from office building to office building. These are congressmen and congresswomen. We office building to office building. We would say, we're part of the Capital Connect group. We pray for our congressmen and congresswomen, and is, your, is the congressman here? Could we pray for him or her? Mostly, they weren't there. So we would pray for maybe the chief of staff or maybe the person who was, who was there, there in the moment. I will tell you, in those congressional offices, we were in the Rayburn office building, the Cannon office building, in those offices, the moment you step into those offices, you are sensitive to culture. Jim Bridenstine's office, whom we know well now, he's our, he's our representative, he's a fantastic individual. Uh, well, they have a dog in their office. You know, and it, the, the culture is one of warmth and generosity and proactive service. 
We went to some, some offices where I will tell you, the culture of fear, the culture of oppression was palpable. It was palpable. You could feel it as soon as you walked in. Um, your leader, are you conscious of the culture that you are shaping uh, as, as a leader? So let's dig into the two practical examples that Solomon gives about how to do this. The first example looks at the largest, widest possible culture, and it's the nation. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now, what he's, what he's saying there is that at the macro level, if a nation is pursuing morality as it is described in the scriptures, there are some natural results to that morality. So I want you to think for a second about, about the early 1800s, 1800 to 1805. Let's just use that as an arbitrary block of time. A uh, lot of good things in our nation during that time. But there was one really bad thing, and it was slavery. And slavery... Uh, had become such like a festering, open, infected wound on our nation. And here's, here's what Abraham Lincoln said. We are proclaiming ourselves political hypocrites before the world if at the same time that we foster human slavery, we are also proclaiming ourselves to be the sole friends of human freedom. It's from a speech in Springfield, Illinois. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. It took the Civil War and Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement just to begin to overcome the systemic problems that occurred because of that particular sin in our nation. At the widest possible macro culture, sin causes natural consequences. At the widest, broadest natural culture, righteousness causes good natural consequences. That's how culture works. Culture affects the macro environment in which we live. We also see this happening at the, at the smallest possible culture, a servant. Who does a servant lead? Himself or herself. That's it. They, they don't have, there's no, no subservants. Servants lead themselves. At the micro-culture, even with a servant, the culture that he brings into his service is a culture that could even invite the notice of the king. Culture, culture matters. You bring your culture of integrity into a small place and you bring something positive and good, and wonderful. Leaders influence culture. Now you might be saying, okay, give me an example. Like, how, how do I do this? How, how can I be a leader that influences uh, culture? Well, here's, here's, here's a, a, a micro way. He's, he's used the macro example, then the micro example of culture. Now he gives us a micro way that we can shape culture. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pour forth folly. 
I just have to tell you how, how I, I love the poetry of the Proverbs. I love it. Because the contrast is, is really so amazing. The idea of pouring out in the negative sense is the idea of spewing out gross things. You know, it's, it's the idea of vomiting out something horrible. And it pictures the escalation of anger. Are there cultures where anger escalates and folly is poured forth in the escalation of anger? Of course. Of course. That happens. Leaders will shape a culture by how they deal with anger. Conversely, the idea of commending in the positive sense is the idea of, of teaching through coaching, teaching through mentoring, teaching through disciple-making, teaching where one person empowers another to communicate well. So putting this together, everybody's a communicator. Everybody's a leader. I mean, everybody's a leader, and to lead well, you've got to communicate well. Okay, so let me give you a checklist. If you, want to, if you want to communicate well, um, look back. What culture have I been bringing into this place? What culture have I been bringing into this place? Recently, I met with a corporate coach at Ernst & Young. And uh, he's a wonderful individual. He's probably in his late 70s now. He's about, about to retire. And he told me this story. He said, um, I, w- I went to the CEO of the company in my early years of coaching. And the CEO asked me a question. I said, well, the first thing I would say is that you don't listen. CEO got angry. Terminated the coaching session early. And the next morning, first thing, the coach got a phone call from the CEO. And he said, I told my wife what you said. And my wife said, finally, Somebody has had the courage to confront you about your core problem. You don't listen. And he said, you're hired as my coach. What culture have you been bringing into the places where you lead or serve? That CEO did not know that he was bringing a culture of non-listening. Didn't know it. It took somebody confronting him. What culture do you bring in to the places where you serve? Second step. Check on the checklist. Look around. What's happening right now in the culture where I serve? Like, you got to really be mindful about this. Like, okay, what is going on right now? What just happened in that transaction? What am I, what am I feeling in this transaction? Try to name the feeling. One time somebody gave me a, a roster of feelings, like a taxonomy of feelings. I, I thought, I, I don't know how to name feelings. And I, I remember looking at the list one time and going, that's what I feel, right there. And if you need help identifying feelings, it's, they're all over the internet. You can, you can search for a taxonomy of feelings. Name what you are feeling in the culture that you're in. Uh, third step is look to, look to the future. How, how can I bring a wise communication presence into this place? How, do I, how can I do that? Um, might be as simple as a smile. Might be as simple as a thoughtful question. Might be, a, it might be a, 
form of leadership that shuts down gossip or shuts down cynicism. And then look to the future. What culture do I want to have here long term? I, I will tell you that we're sinful fallen human beings and cultures are sinful fallen places. And no matter how good your marriage is or your family is or your office is, or how, no matter how bad it is, you can always find room to tweak and improve the culture that you're in through good communication. When my, my boys, one time when my boys were off at college, um, I was really rebuilding the culture of my relationship with the boys. And my son called me, I was walking the dog, my son called me, we talked for the whole mile that I walked. And toward the end of the conversation, he says, Dad, you know what's really cool? I'm starting to like you again. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Lord, thanks, you know. A shift in culture had produced enhanced connection with, with my son. Now we move to, to the third phase of the passage, and here's what you do after you communicate. You look ahead. You, you say, I, I, okay, I want to be a conduit of God's life-giving presence like his supernatural, life-giving presence. Proverbs 15, verse 3. This is a tremendous verse. This is a great, great verse to memorize. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch over the evil and the good. Why should I want to enhance the culture where I lead? Because God's there. How do we get the power to enhance the culture where I lead? God, his presence. This is an invitation to live in the moment-by-moment -moment supernatural presence of God. Let me just remind you of something theologically. God is omnipresent, which means the entirety of God is contemporaneously present at every point of space. I know that's a really big definition. But what I'm saying is the entirety of God is contemporaneously present at every point of space. God is omnipresent. He's omnipresent. He's present in Jupiter. He's president. He, president. He's present in the Andromeda galaxy. He's present there. He's present at the far reaches of the universe. He's always present. But here's the thing. Sometimes God manifests his localized presence. And that's when things get interesting. When Jesus was on the earth, Jesus manifested in a local place the presence of the triune God. And what God loves is when you recognize his presence in the air around you, in the space around you. I hope you realize this. God is present in the space around you. Where my hands are, God is present there. God is present in that space. In him I live and move and have my being. God is present in that space. And God loves it when you don't just intellectually say, yes, I know you're omnipresent, but when you sense his presence around you in the space around you. God loves it when you enter into that kingdom presence. I say kingdom presence because Jesus says, 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We think, okay, God is present everywhere, but is he really present around me? Yes, he's present around you. And he wants to be the Lord of that realm that you occupy, whether it's your home or your office or your car. And he wants you to sense, he wants you to sense that presence. Now, here's what's really cool. When you walk in his supernatural presence, you shift the atmosphere around you in a Godward direction. And good leaders are atmosphere shifters. They're atmosphere shifters. I'll give you, give you an example. We, we were, uh, two of my daughters, we were at a wedding, and we were driving back to the airport, and it was Cindy and I and our, our oldest grandson and, and our two daughters. And we're about ready, we're about ready to drop somebody off at the, air, at the airport, and my oldest daughter says, Mom and Dad, what can we pray for you about? Cindy mentioned something, I mentioned something. And the atmosphere shifted in the car. Because my, our, my daughters prayed for me, they prayed for Cindy, they prayed for our marriage, and I don't think it lasted more than five minutes, less than five minutes. But I will tell you, it felt like heaven was present in that car as my daughters, through their good communication and their godly leadership, were leading their mom and dad to trust him for a prayer request that we had. Never, never forget that. That was, that was an, an amazing thing. So how does good communication do that? Well, let's t take a look at the last verse in the passage. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Oh, that's a great verse. It's a great verse. Just, just imagine this massive, massive oak tree. What does that oak tree say to you? Strength, power, life, longevity permanence, beauty. How many times did you as a kid go underneath the shade of a broad tree? You're under the canopy of that shade, and you're sitting against that tree, maybe reading a book, maybe swinging in a swing. I'm looking at most of you. I don't think you had your iPhone under that tree. I don't think you had your laptop. I don't think you're listening to your iPod underneath that tree. You're probably reading a book or doing something, just sitting. A tree like that is a giver of life. And if you use your speech well, your communication well, you shift culture, you shape culture differently, you bring life to that culture, you bring God's life to that culture because you're speaking in his name. You're invoking his presence. I'll close, I'll close with this. Um, I am a Gallup certified strengths coach. And I use the Gallup Strengths Finder to coach various people. I've coached a lot of people at Grace Community Church. Uh, I got a call from a person who asked if I would coach him. He worked for the uh, Heinz Company. And his job was not, not a fun job. And we went through his strengths profile. And uh, what I strive to do is to state in a single sentence 
how a person is wired to do life based upon their Gallup, Gallup strengths. And I said in a single sentence how he best served the corporation that he was in. And um, what was really fun was to hear him talk about how then he went to his next interview and said, this is me, this is me. And he used that sentence or a variation of that sentence and said, this is what I bring to a company. This is what I'm really good at. This is where I'm not good. I know I can serve you in your company doing what I have done best for 15 years in this industry. So when I heard about that, I, I just said, Lord, thank you that I could be a tree of life to this individual. God-centered communication allows you to be a tree of life that shifts cultures. That's what I want for you. I want you to be a tree of life. When people look at you, I hope what they'll say is, that person is a conduit of God's life-giving presence. So how does it work? Good leaders become great communicators. Before they communicate, they're building habits of character. As they communicate, they realize they're shaping culture and they want to communicate well. And after they communicate, they remember the big picture. Big picture. I am a conduit of God's life-giving presence. I have the potential to minister to people in Jesus' name, no matter where I am, because God's kingdom is everywhere. Let's stand for our closing prayer. Father in heaven, I uh, want to pray, Lord, for those of us here today who are saying to themselves, I need to change the culture that I bring into my home. Lord, I pray that you would give them the grace to rely upon your spirit to do that. Lord, I pray for those here who are saying, um, okay, I, I think I've I think I'm doing okay. I want to excel still more. Lord, I pray that you would impart your grace as they do that. Father, I pray that we as a church could be a tree of life to people in this community. In Jesus' name, amen.